Morning. Did you guys see there was snow in the forecast? This, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> my name is David Soren. Uh, I'm the pastor here, the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Morning to you. Uh, has anybody noticed that there are just reboots everywhere on TV nowadays? It's like somebody just get an original idea. Uh, think of it this way. Imagine that it's the mid-1980s and you go into a coma, right? And you're just asleep until 2018. You wake up in your room, no one's there, you turn on the TV and you see, oh, Roseanne's on. (laughs) You turn the channel, of course, and you think, oh, look, MacGyver's on, right? And then you see a a commercial, it's a preview for a Star Wars movie. You just think to yourself, I haven't been asleep that long, right? (laughs) Just everywhere. Uh, Today, as we resume our series on the Gospel of Luke that we started back in March, I want to talk about rebooting a word that doesn't get used a whole lot more in our culture, and that's this biblical word of repentance. Uh, Repentance means to not only ask for forgiveness, say you're sorry for your sins, but the word literally means to turn, to turn away from them and start walking towards God. Now, we don't talk about this sort of thing anymore, and we, we definitely don't practice it. And one of the reasons is our culture sort of tells us that, well, there's nothing for you to turn from, right? You're okay. How you live your life is up to you, and there's no reason to turn from anything. In fact, I can visually demonstrate for you that we just don't talk about this concept anymore as a society. Anybody familiar with the Google Ngram viewer? It's it's kind of a cool tool. You can go to Google. Look this up later. You've got better things to do right now. And you can go and you can type in any word, and it'll tell you, on a percentage basis, how often that word has been used in books from the year 1500 onwards. And so take a look at this. Here's a picture of how often the word repentance uh, was used in books. And you can, I don't know if you can read the numbers on the bottom, but essentially uh, quite often in the 1700s, 1800s, you get to about the 20th century and especially in today, and we just don't care about that concept anymore. And yet it's an incredibly important concept in the Bible and one that we've come to to today as we're walking through the book of Luke. Now, I know uh, many of you are new here. We we spend about half the year every year just walking verse by verse through a book of the Bible, and our book for 2018 is uh, the book of Luke, which is one of four stories in the Bible about uh, the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, if you want to follow along today, uh, we are on page 833. There's a Bible under every chair. Uh, or you can use your Bible app. Uh, you just, uh, t- t- or, your, or your Renovation Church app, just tap on Bible and Weekly Verses. I just ask that whatever you do, have it in front of you. It's just good to have the Word of God in front of you. So page 833 uh, or the Renovation Church app. Uh, back in March, we covered the birth story of John the Baptist, and today we're going to look at part of his life as an adult. So this is Luke chapter 3. And we are in verse 1. Here's what Luke writes. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, If you're reading that at home, you just kind of skip those two verses. You're like, I don't care who those people are, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Why does Luke even put all of those names of the government officials in Scripture? He does so because the Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible doesn't start with once upon a time. It's recounting real people 
doing real things at a real time in history. These are real government leaders. In fact, it's kind of cool. If you, on a chart, put all of those different leaders' reigns together, we can pinpoint down the beginning of John's ministry to either the year A.D. 27 or A.D. 28, which is kind of cool. So let's continue in the passage. Verse 3 now. It says, He, this is John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet. So he's going to quote something from the Old Testament at this point. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. And so Luke quotes this 700-year-old prophecy from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And it was this prophecy that somebody, it's going to be John the Baptist, was going to come before the Messiah and prepare the people for the Messiah. Now, I know that uh, a ton of you in this room are new here even in the last month. But if you were here with us back in March, when we covered the story of the birth of John the Baptist, uh, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, who's John's dad, and he says in chapter 1 that John was going to be the one who was going to go before the Messiah, and he says he'll come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and John was, in a sense, going to be kind of like Elijah. In fact, later in the book of Matthew, which is one of the other four stories about Jesus, Chapter 17, Jesus himself says that John the Baptist was this Elijah figure that prepared the way for him. In fact, let me show you something really cool about the Bible. Get, grab the Bible under the chair, even if you haven't grabbed it yet, and then open uh, to the very last page of the Old Testament. Uh, so this is uh, page 780. Very last page of the Old Testament. And what you're going to see here is this is the very last prophecy of the Old Testament. In fact, nothing else was prophesied for 400 years until the New Testament began. So this is from the last prophet, the book of Malachi. This is how the Old Testament ends. It says, see, I will, this is God speaking, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, which, by the way, is the exact same thing that Gabriel said to Zechariah that John the Baptist was going to do, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so he's saying this Elijah figure is coming before the Lord comes. Now, if you turn to the very first book of the New Testament chronologically, actually the first book written in the New Testament was the book of Mark. So if you look at the book of Mark, the book of Mark, so this is the first thing that was written after that last prophecy, the book of Mark, the very first verses open with the story of John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for the Lord. So this kind of cool connection between how the Old Testament ends and how the New Testament begins. It's this seamless concept of God's movement. So John the Baptist goes out on the desert, he's near the Jordan River, and he starts preaching. He's kind of an interesting guy. The book of Matthew tells us that John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And so John was not an exceptionally cool preacher, right? He didn't have skinny jeans. He didn't wear flannel shirts. He didn't wear oversized glasses, even though he didn't need a prescription, right? And yet, 
I, my guess is that John actually probably had a pretty sweet beard. <laughs> so he was cool in that way, I guess. But we see that he goes out and he starts preaching. And Luke says he's preaching a baptism of repentance. And there's that word again. He's telling people they need to not only ask God for forgiveness, but turn away from their sin. So he's out in the desert. He's preaching fire and brimstone. And the Jewish people are just coming out to him in just droves, asking to be baptized. John is preparing their hearts for what is going to be God's greatest chapter in history. And so people start coming out to them because they want to be forgiven, right? They want, they want to be washed clean. They want their lives to be different now. They want to repent. And all sorts of people are coming out. The Pharisees are coming out. Other religious leaders are coming out. Soldiers are coming out. Tax collectors are coming out. And John starts preaching to them. So let's read what he says. Now, verse 7 in our passage today in Luke. It says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Okay, so John starts off his message, and he says, you brood of vipers. Like, this guy is not seeker-sensitive, okay? And he says in verse 8, he says, do, hey, don't even begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. He says, that's not going to save you. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Oh, okay, what does that mean? If you're maybe not as familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament, maybe that's not clicking for you. Well, we have Abraham as our father. Abraham, this is Genesis 12 in the Old Testament, was the father of the Jewish nations. And so many Jews at that time thought that they were saved, that they were going to go to heaven, just because they were Jewish in their heritage. That they were saved, no matter what they did, because they were Jewish. And John is saying, "Uh uh-uh, not so much. It is only the mercy and forgiveness of God that saves you, and that comes through your faith. No matter what the color of your skin is. This is a huge, important message of the New Testament. In fact, think about this. Jews, John's having everybody come out and get baptized, which to us sounds kind of familiar, but here's the deal. Jews did not get baptized in those days. In fact, do you know who the only people were that got baptized? It was the Gentiles. See, if you were a Gentile, and Gentile just means a non-Jewish person, If you were a Gentile and you believed that the Lord, the God of the Bible, was the one true God, and let's say you decided, I want to follow him. I believe he's the one true God. I don't want to follow Apollos. I I, I, I don't want to follow Zeus. I I don't want to follow some other God. I want to follow the Lord. What would happen is you would go through this process, and at the end of the process, you would be baptized as a way to show that God is 
washing away your sins. What they would do is they would fully immerse them in water. That's how they did it. And that would symbolize not only the washing away of their sins, but that you were leaving your old life behind. You were burying it in the water. That's, this is repentance. You're moving on to something else. And that's what the Gentiles did. But the Jews never got baptized because they thought, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a daughter of Abraham. I'm saved. You check out my 23 in me. I'm, sa- I'm saved, right? Because I'm Jewish. And John's saying, not so much. That's not how it works. You're not really a child of Abraham unless you have faith. This is Galatians chapter 3, if you want to read it. The true children of Abraham are the children of faith. And so John the Baptist says, do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. And I think we ought to hear John's words in our day, in our culture. Right? So do not even begin to say to yourself, of course I'm saved because my parents went to church. My parents are believers. Don't begin to say to yourself, I went to church as a kid. I mean, people in our culture do this. They're not questioning, they're not thinking about what's going to happen when I die. Because they think, oh, I don't know, I believe God exists, and I went to a Lutheran church or a Catholic church when I was a kid, and I don't know. Do not even begin to say to yourself, well, I was baptized as a baby. Don't begin to say to yourself, well, I was confirmed in ninth grade. Don't begin to say to yourself, well, I'm in a house group. See, there's always this temptation to say, I'm saved because of what I did. But we're only saved because of what he did. And if we're saved because of what he did, in our case, that's Jesus dying on the cross for us, then that ought to absolutely change our lives. Think of it this way. What if you had the power to release someone from prison? And right after you, you went through all this work to release them from prison. And right after they get out of prison, they go right back out and they commit a crime. Right? That would be tragic. You would think, I, just, I went through so much to release you from bondage, and you just went right back out there. Just tragic. What if you had the power to release someone from their extreme poverty? Right and yet right after your generous financial gift to them, they went right out and just blew all the money in wild living. You would think, oh, this is tragic. I sacrificed so much so you could be blessed and get out of poverty, and you just squandered it. Shouldn't my generosity have impacted your life? I think this is the question that is before us this morning. If Jesus released me from bondage, if Jesus has blessed me, if Jesus has moved in my life, shouldn't that have a radical impact on how I actually live my life? Because Jesus Christ gave his life for you on the cross. He bled for you. He died for you. The Bible says if you believe that in faith, you are completely forgiven. You'll spend eternity in heaven. And yet, for far too many Christians, we let Jesus release us from bondage. He showers us with grace. We think, oh, I'm going to heaven. And we just walk right back to our old life. I I just, I love, when I read this passage, I love what the people keep saying to John the Baptist. Did you catch this? They ask him the same question three times. It's in verse 10, it's in verse 12, it's in verse 14. 
They come up to John, and while the water is still dripping off them from their baptism, they say, what should we do then? We just gave our lives to God. What should we do? What do we do? What do we do? God's forgiven us, and so now I want to follow him, but what do I do? And I think a lot of it is rooted in this really important phrase. This to me is maybe the most important phrase of this entire passage for today. Uh, Look to verse 8. Here's what John the Baptist says. He says, produce fruit. These are the good spiritual things coming out of your life. How do you do it? You produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I think for too many of us as Christians in America, as soon as the water from our baptism sort of dries off, we stop asking, all right, what next, God? What do I do next? How do I live for you more? The water dries off, and our spiritual lives just begin to dry out. It's too many Christians that are somehow satisfied with just being saved. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I know the truth. Now my neighbor doesn't know, but I know. And that's just somehow enough for you. We're not asking, what next, God? How do I give more? What do I I need to repent on? What, what, What next? We just kind of go through life. Yeah, we repented one time, but we never return to repentance. But John says very clearly, if you want to produce fruit, you want to keep growing spiritually, then you have to keep up with repentance. So if you're sitting here today and your faith just feels dry, right? maybe it just feels like it's been AWOL for a few years, start just asking this question again. Okay, well, God, what do I do? What next? What next? In fact, I just want to give you, I like to do this. I'm a practical thinker. I, I want to just give you a few practical ways that how do you live out verse 8? How do you live out this idea of producing fruit while keeping with repentance? So I just want to look at uh, three ways today that you can retu- routinely return to repentance in your life. And here's the first one. This is so important for modern-day Americans. Allow space, allow yourself space to be convicted by God on what you need to work on. Here's what I mean by that. I think far too many of us, we, we compartmentalize some of our sin. We hide it away. We don't even let God touch it, and so we don't feel convicted about it. There's probably a good portion of you in this room already, this is so natural for you that you're just thinking, I don't really think this message is for me today. Just tucked away. You see, one of the devil's favorite tricks is convincing you through your pride that you don't really have a whole lot to work on in your life right now. And, and sort of the double danger of this is our fast-paced American life just sort of plays into this, right? That we just go, 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 that we never have time to stop for reflection. We never have time to stop and say, God, what should I do then? If you saved me, then how should I be living for you? God, where, where, is, where is my sin just taking over my life right now? God, would you just show me where my sin is offensive to you? God, will you show me those parts of my life that I'm just hiding from you, that I'm not letting you touch? Do you ask God questions like this? Or is it just through the motions, here you are, another Sunday morning, I guess I'm doing enough. You say, God, what now? What do I do now? What, what, what parts of me are left that I haven't given to you? I think Christians nowadays 
are often much slower to grow in spiritual maturity because we so rarely stop and give ourselves space to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And if you're not giving yourself space for God to speak into your life, then you're never going to grow. There's just a stunting that happens in your spiritual growth. I just dare you this week. Stop. Take some space and say, God, what next? What do I need to give to you? I find that one of the only ways that Christians ever hear from God anymore is in the shower. Because it's the only time that you're not focused on something else, right? Honestly, I keep hearing stories of young people who are taking their devices and putting them in Ziploc bags and going in the shower so they can keep watching Netflix, right? Give yourself some space for the Holy Spirit to just move in your life. Make sure you're setting time aside every day to pray, some time even of silence for God to speak into your life. I just think Americans usually have two modes, right? There's A, there's crazy busy mode, right? Where you're just go, go, go. I wake up in the morning and I get breakfast and on the, on the go and I go to work and I, and I get my kids and I do this and go, go, go. It's just your life is crazy, right? And then you get the kids to bed or you stop hanging out with your roommates or whatever you do and you hit a certain time of the night and we just seamlessly transition in from the first mode, which is crazy, 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 to Netflix zombie mode. That's what we do for the next three hours until you drift to sleep. You wake up in the morning, go, 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 Netflix zombie mode. And that's kind of it. And there's no space in either of those for God to just come in and say, hey, you're not giving this to me. Let's grow. Let's grow together. Repent. Walk away from that so we can grow. And see, the next thing after that, and by, by the way, I would even say this. One of the things that's really powerful about being here on a Sunday morning in the flesh every Sunday is, this, again, it's one of the only spaces that you and I have in our modern-day lives where we come and you're just allowing God space. Okay, speak to me. That's powerful. You're going to grow doing that. Okay, so God, you give him space. He puts something on your heart that you just need to work on. The next step is you confess it. You confess your sin. I'm not sure what the Holy Spirit is doing in this church right now, but I feel like this topic keeps coming up and up again in the passages that we've been looking at. God's saying something to our church, I think, about confession. 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Listen, you've got a lot to confess to Jesus. I could start with my sin, but you wouldn't be out of here until tomorrow, right? Or maybe the next day. You're not without sin. But we're just afraid to talk about this in our proud Midwestern culture. Right? We sit in our small groups, and instead of really confessing some sins so we can grow, your small group leader says, all right, prayer request time. And you go, oh, prayer request, prayer request, prayer request. Yeah, guys, I'm wondering if you could pray. My, um, my cousin's dog just really has the sniffles right now. And it, if you could just pray for Fluffy, that would be great, right? And, and okay, you can do that but you're not really going to grow. Daily repentance is the track to growth with the Lord. You can't do that unless you're honest with other people. You need to trust God, and you need to trust others with the real you. Uh, Here's here's a principle you can take. 
the degree to which you are honest with God and another person is the same degree, typically, that you're going to grow spiritually. And so if you're only really this honest with God and another person about what you're struggling with, well, then you're only going to grow about that much. There's a strong correlation between the two. That's why the Bible says this, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins. What does that say? Just say it out loud. To each other. other. Not even just to God. To each other. So that you may be healed. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Because when you, when you, you don't have to do this in a group of seven. You can do it one-on-one. But you you begin to confess to other people, I'm struggling with this. And it doesn't have to be, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm secretly doing crack cocaine, right? It, it doesn't have to be that. Because some of you are doing that, and you're going, I don't have anything to confess. Right? It can be, I'm just not really loving and serving my spouse right now. I'm just being selfish in my marriage. Well, that's okay. Talk about that. Confess that. See, because sin grows in secrecy. Right? Sin, sin's kind of like mold, it just grows in the dark. I will tell you, the loneliest people alive are prideful people. Because when you're prideful, you have to hide who you really are. But if you can just start being honest with another person, you start throwing out there with your struggle, what you're struggling with. Hey, look, I did step one. The Lord's convicting me of some things. And I just want to confess to you and to God that I'm struggling with it. That's a huge step towards repentance. And you're going to grow in that. And after, this is step three now. After you, the Lord convicts you, you confess it. Step three is this. You walk it out. Because repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle. In fact, uh, let me show you what a a lifestyle of repentance looks like. We're going to do some uh, church participation here. I need some dude to come up here and play Jesus. Uh, You just have to smile and stand on the stage. Will some guy come up here and play Jesus? Ready, go. Somebody just walk up here. This is the part you get up. You can do it. Somebody, I'm just going to sit up here. Thank you. Butch, welcome. Uh, if you just stand right over here and just smile, you look just like Christ. Okay. Now, let's say Butch is Jesus, right? And, and here's my life. Let's say over here I get, I get saved. And my goal is I want to walk towards Christ in my relationship. This is what it typically looks like for most of us. You start out good and you're doing great. And you're like, oh, I just want to follow Jesus. Oh, this is great. But then what happens? You go, no, no, no. I miss my old life. I mean, some of you are like, oh, I don't say, oh, yes, you do. I miss my old life. And we start turning back towards sin. If sin is over here and Jesus is over there, we start turning back towards sin. And you, then what happens is you feel the hollowness of sin. You go, oh, man, I don't want that. I want to follow God again. And this is where you repent. You say, I don't want this. This is not working for me. And you turn. You start following Jesus again. And you do it again. You start walking, and then you go, ah, oh, this, this feels great. And then your mind goes, you know what else feels great? Sin. And you turn around again. And then you feel the emptiness. of you. This is, not, this is not what I want. And you repent. And you move again. And you're getting closer and closer. And you feel it. And this is what my walk looks like. Oh, no, 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 I don't. Right? Oh, Jesus, right? And, and, and it's daily repentance. You are great, Jesus. Thank you, Butch. <laughs> now, I want you to notice a couple things about this. It's not a one-time thing. Repentance is a lifestyle. And John the Baptist is saying... If you want to produce fruit, 
then you need to return to this idea of, I'm sorry, I'm coming back to you. You need to turn to this idea of repentance daily. Every day you're saying, what do I do, God? What should I do then? And then I also want you to notice this. Okay, there was a lot of back and forth, right? Walking towards God, we're walking away from God. But notice that the transformation in your life is in the progress that you made. It's not perfect, but the transformation happens in the progress. And you cannot make spiritual progress without a commitment to often return to repentance. That's what John's saying. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, I had to keep turning around a lot because I just keep sinning. But if you don't keep turning around, you never really make any progress. But if you're willing to keep turning back, eventually, what? You make spiritual progress in your relationship. And so this is the question for you. Where do you just need to return to repentance in your life again? So just say to the Lord this morning, God, I, I don't know why I'm carrying this. I don't know why I keep doing this, but I'm going to let go of it. I'm going to start following you again. Where, where have you even stopped giving God access in your life? And honestly, that's causing you to walk away from him more than towards him. Are you not giving him access to your marriage? Are you not giving him access to what you talk about with your buddies or with your friends? Are you not giving him access to your wallet, to your calendar, to whether or not you're honest at work, to what you look at with your eyes on the TV, on your, on your phone? I'm not talking about those of us who just struggle back and forth, right? I'm talking about places where you've just shut it off and you're just not even letting God touch it. Where do you need to start walking towards Jesus again in your life? Because you won't get any closer to God unless you repent. See, it, I want you to imagine this. Let's, let's, let's pretend this is a representative of, of unrepentant sin. We all have it, all of us, every person in this room. There's something in your life, you just haven't, you're, you're sinning, you know it, it's not in God's will, it's not what he wants for your life, and you just haven't surrendered it to him. Unrepentant sin is like a magnet in your life towards sin. Right? You're not touching it, you haven't brought it out into the light, whether you recognize it or not, it's doing this all the time because you haven't brought it to him. It's just pulling you like a magnet away from Jesus because you haven't repented from it. And the only way you start making progress again is if you drop this. You drop it. You say, okay, I'm going to start walking towards you again. And here's what I know about me. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but this is what I do. I say, I drop it, and I start walking towards him. And then about seven days later, I say, I'm going to go get this again. Thanks for coming back, right? And then I have to go, no, I don't want that. And then I go back again. I don't want it. I, want, no, I don't want that. And see, this is why, 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 why John is talking about daily repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You might have to drop it 30 times. But unless you're willing to drop it, you can't move that way because it's the magnet pulling you away from Jesus. What do you need to repent of today? To tell God, oh, this has just got to stop. I'm, just, I'm dropping this today. And I'm walking towards you again. This morning, we're going to take communion together as a body of believers. Why are we going to do that? We're going to do it today because of this. You cannot guilt yourself into producing fruit. 
Christianity is not behavioralism. It's not you just saying, I'm going to get better at this. That's not really how it works. You need to produce fruit. You need the grace of God to wash over you. In the New Testament, Paul writes this about communion. 1 Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so today, as we take communion, there's a lot of people in here. And so there's a, a table in the back there, a table in the back there. And then we added another table in the front here for, for many of you uh, in the front. And at any time during the last two songs, I want you to get up and uh, serve yourself communion. There's just pieces of bread, and you dip it in the juice and, cons- and serve yourself. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians, he says, whenever we, whenever we take communion, that we ought to examine ourselves. Meaning, if you're here today and you're like, I'm not sure I'm really believing in Jesus yet. I'm just investigating. Then just wait on this. And for those of you that are following Jesus, it means that we examine ourselves before we just go take communion. And today we examine ourselves about repentance. That taking communion is an opportunity to repent, to turn. And it's an opportunity to let God's grace just wash over you. To remember, whatever he's got in your heart right now, in your mind, whatever you're just thinking about, to remember that God is looking at you right now saying, I knew you were going to do that. I knew that. When I was, when they were nailing me to the cross, I knew you were going to do that. And I went anyway. Because I love you. So just accept that grace and that forgiveness. This is our walk. It's back and forth. He knows it. Don't let your imperfection stop you from walking this way. It's so much better. It's so much better. The path to joy is in the path of obedience. And just let that grace come into your life. Because grace is the thing, it is the ingredient that grows the fruit in your life. And so take a minute, take two minutes, take five minutes before you get up, and I want you to just repent. Even if that's something you don't normally do, say, God, I'm sorry. And I want to move from this. And as you get up and you get out of your chair, I want you just in your heart, I want you to just drop what you need to drop and just feel his grace and forgiveness wash over you. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, uh, we just say that you are welcome here. And we want you to just wash over us as a church. I pray that as we get up and as we experience the idea that you, Jesus, were broken for us, that you bled for us, God, that we just experience your grace. I ask that your grace gives us the strength and the power to actually walk away from these things that are pulling us away from you. God, may this be an important day in our lives where we take steps back towards you again. We just love you so much and we're so grateful that you are a God that forgives us no matter how many times we turn away from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.